0: And welcome back to Skills Pay Bills, where we are interviewing Vin for the second part, and he talks about his work experiences, such as working and living for six days in the wild of Kazakhstan, you know, among the mountains and the wolves.
1: So at your production company, what kind of projects were you working on? Okay, so
2: when I first joined uh, the production company, I started off as an assistant editor, and so initially, what I was doing was the prep work, so I was organizing rushes, I was syncing content, I was just prepping the stuff for the main editors to edit, and occasionally, um I would get to edit shorter videos here and there. When I started most of my stuff was i would say not super interesting it was it was a lot of waiting for stuff to sync, a lot of backing up, and you know a lot of doing the the dirty work and Tying up loose ends, and then uh, I think it was about six to eight months uh, after I joined, there was a ex- uh, my company got uh, quite a big show from Discovery Channel greenlit, and it involved uh, traveling to remote places around Asia for shoots. It was a it was a survival show, and the show was going to be filmed in UHD. It was going to be the first of its kind. What's UHD? And uh, in ultra high definition. So it's like. In in 4K Okay wow. Yeah So they needed Someone to Travel with the crew That was familiar with uh, The post-production process And the workflow To work a system Where we could uh Ingest our footage daily That means we would Have to copy the footage out From the cards uh, And the audio recorders And stuff like that And back, back the footage up Into our drives And then refresh the cards And send them out and also, to, because it was going to be shot in 4K and it was kind of cutting-edge cutting, cutting edge technology, we were very wary of um, possibly having a lot of technical issues with, with the footage. So we needed someone to do a QC on the ground itself uh, in the middle of a remote area. So you'd be talking about places where there's no electricity and there's no Wi-Fi. So mm. we had to come up with a workflow... Where we could incorporate our our entire edit station in the middle of a jungle or in the middle of a desert,
1: so you had to film an a four k ultra h d production without access to stable power, yeah, when you need it, so like yeah, I don't like for for any average guy like even filming something like we we all we constantly think of like having batteries with us, having like and having like a good camera even if you have a good camera we take ultra care of it and we'll never think of bringing it to somewhere like outdoorsy or even like yeah. somewhere with no power or the jungle so I guess that like do you feel a of responsibility and like stress because <laughs> I think I'll feel yeah, like yeah. ultra like stress knowing that I'm at some place filming a, a big show in like 4k like top of the line technology and not having proper electricity access
2: okay so i volunteered for this project and i uh, emailed my boss and said that i would like to do it because uh, they weren't looking for people in my department actually they were looking for people outside mm. and i said like i heard about this shoot i know it requires 6 month of 6 months of traveling and i was i wanted to do it i want to try and i think it'll be a good experience for me because i knew that the crew going on this shoot were an international crew very experienced uh and being amongst them would definitely help me in terms of learning from them and talking to them. And of course, if you're out in a remote area with them for two weeks at a time for six months, after six months, you're going to be good friends with them and you know, you're going to definitely uh, learn a lot of their, hear a lot of their interesting experiences that they've had and hopefully pick up some skills and become a better editor or producer after that. So, I I emailed my boss and he sent it to my owner of the company. And then, yeah, they they agreed and they they said, okay, sure. And then I was immediately thrown into it. And then we had to figure out how we're going to... I think the first week was when I realized I, I was like, oh, did I just... What did I get myself into? Because uh there were so many things that I didn't really think about first, which was like what you said. Cameras are not made. Most cameras that, are, that can shoot 4K at the bit rate that Discovery Channel uh, requires for you to for it to pass a quality test because it if you want it to be a broadcast standard it has to be a certain level only only really big cameras like can handle that and those cameras aren't made to be out in the in the desert in the snow (laughs) in the rain so that was the number one thing we had to figure out how do we windproof waterproof these cameras to make sure that we are still able to shoot without the cameras going down
1: also like were, were you like trained for this at all like do you have like training for this project or any experience beforehand uh no i don't think i wasn't trained
2: in doing this in doing this the experience that i had was i was doing pretty well in terms of handling the post-production processes in the office itself so I thought like I kinda had a very good grasp of how the whole system works so I was then tasked to take this whole system and try to bring make it mobile and then go and look online for possible so things I'd look online for like generators uh, uninterrupted power supply any sort of waterproofing for cameras mm. and suggest these ideas to the producer and hopefully we come up with a workflow that would be successful and not cause too many uh equipment too, too many cameras to go down when we we're out there I'm just curious oh, how much, how, is, how much is a
0: camera yeah.
2: <laughs> something around like 10000 oh my god for, for like the big for the big cameras though, like the sony fs7 i think it was around there but the other the the, the smaller cameras that were used for they were used more often they were about 4000 there were so many... Like, I'm talking about... Tens of thousands of dollars of damaged cameras... Every... Every two episodes or something like that. Shit. The number of smash cameras... The number of smash drones... It was something... Something else, man. It Smash from what? From... from Okay, the... Smash cameras is when people... They would like fall down... And the camera... They would just drop the camera... And it would just like roll down the oh, a fuck. mountain. Uh, and then the the drones were, were... Crashing through the water... Crashing through a waterfall hit a branch and hit a branch yeah. <laughs> gopros are the best <laughs> uh, they've been, uh, they are the sturdiest of cameras and still somehow they managed to make a waterproof gopro not so waterproof <laughs>
0: what's the budget <laughs> but, uh, for these uh, kind of uh, things that
2: was a big budget show oh, okay. I'm not sure the, the, the exact detail but it was a it was a very very big budget show that being said it was a big budget show but we still had to operate within a certain amount of money and we didn't ha- and we were tasked to not try our very, very best to not wreck equipment for <laughs> each, Minimize shoot, each shoot. loss. <laughs> there is a, I have an interesting story about this, about going out on, on shoot. So, basically, for this shoot, we went to Borneo, Northern Thailand, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, the Himalayas, and Palau. It was a, yeah, quite a diverse range of, of territories around Asia. And the most interesting one was shooting in Kazakhstan, so we were at a national park somewhere in the northeast of Almaty and the the terrain there was was like surreal. It felt like we were on Mars or something like that. It was red rocks, and it was something that like I'd never seen before, and all of us were staying in tents and it was <laughs> like literally in the middle of nowhere. there was nothing around us uh so the first night when we arrived, we realised that the winds were really strong. Like, the strongest it has been... This was episode 5, I think, and in the past 4 episodes, nothing compared to this. The winds were really, really strong. And for my station, I had to set up a station where, you know, I have a Mac Pro, like the the Mac Pro that looks like a dustbin. I had to set that up with my monitor and uh, enclosure with drives in it. All these things, right, are very moisture-sensitive and and wind-and-dust-sensitive, so you have to keep these things very safe from all these things so the tents that we the the tents that were already set up there were too open and it was too windy for us to set up so we were just like okay we can't set up until we have to get a new tent so I spoke to the fixer so a fixer is this guy who makes things happen so each country we go to there's a fixer and he has contacts to purchase the items etc so he showed us some pictures of uh, some supposed army grade tents that were windproof and and sandproof or whatever it was. and then Sounds we were like, like okay. arms
0: dealer. <laughs> it was
2: something he, he was <laughs> like, I'll show, show you these pictures on my phone and then he showed, him, showed us these pictures and we were like, okay, it was super expensive also but we didn't have a choice because if not, if I can't set up, then the shoot can't go on because we need, we need a station. So, we ordered this tent and then the next day, uh, the, 10 arrives and there was a group of maybe 5 or 6 locals that uh, took the tent out of the truck and then started set- setting it up and then when he started setting it up I looked at it and I was like telling my colleague like what what is that it, it didn't look anything like what it was in the picture <laughs> <laughs> it was basically made out of the same material that uh, you know like a potato sack is made of it, it looked like something like that Like,
1: like did sandbag, look like, uh, like those like exactly. sand can like, come up from a sandbag <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and the picture that we saw was like this, like a green, uh, you know, like your like in army, like your your basha, then kind of thing, that Duh. kind of material.
1: What do they call it?
2: Ah, uh? <laughs> never mind. Uh, can't remember. Tap.
1: Yeah, yeah, like the, a tarp. Yeah.
2: Yes. So it it looked nothing like that, and literally what it, what they had was one metal pole that they stuck onto the ground, and then they threw this cloth over the metal pole, and then they they attached pegs to the end of each each end of the cloth it looked nothing like the tent that that was in the picture mm. and we paid I don't know how many hundred US dollars for this tent and I went I went to the to the fixer I was like there's no way that this tent is going to withstand any of the wind that is going to hit us there's nothing like what you showed us in the picture and then his response was ah well this is Kazakhstan nothing is ever really <laughs> like the picture They're just like, okay. (laughs) So we were just, we just had to make do with that. So the next day after I set up, I think it was, it must have been like an hour after I finished setting up. We were hit with the strongest windstorm that was like worse than the past three days that we were there. So bad, like the tent lasted five minutes and it was blown away while my equipment and everything was inside. So I had to like struggle to like, open a belly case and like throw all my equipment in while this tent was being blown away I saw the video of that and it was really funny because it was three of us in the tent and we all just thought we were going to die and at the same time we are just trying to pack everything together it was, it was it was so bad we couldn't even walk towards that direction the wind was coming uh, at us and it was just like sand and dust and everything oh, everywhere
0: wow. is it possible everything to share was- the video while you're talking <laughs> <laughs> it,
2: I don't know where it is i need to find it. it it must be on my old phone okay but it's it's was such a surreal experience packed everything and we were like what do we do now my entire tent is has been collapsed i don't have an office and the shoot starts tomorrow we need to find another place right mm. so then our fixer says actually right there's this shed that's about a 7 minute drive down from where our our campsite was and it's uh, it's an abandoned shed. It's just it's a it's a brick structure, but it's so it's like a tiny tiny house, with nothing inside, like a small with with one table and one chair inside, the door that doesn't and a door that doesn't even close properly. We are like okay, no choice. We take we take one generator. We you take your equipment, and you just go there. And you take you take a radio with you, and you take a solar panel, and you go there. <laughs> And unfortunately, we did not have enough manpower to have more than one person there. So you go there and you stay there for the next five to six days. Oh my god! And so
1: it's just one abandoned like brick, ha- small house, or yes, shed in the is... middle.
2: And it was really in the middle of nowhere. Like it, it's just one house in this vast emptiness of red rocks. Was there a and toilet? No, there's nothing. <laughs> there's no there's no running water. Okay, nothing. okay, it was wait, just, wait, Let's
1: let's just like bring it back first. So. We're in Kazakhstan, so you're in like basically on Mars. Mars on Earth. Um, yeah. It was super windy and sandy. You couldn't even work properly. You got scammed by like a tent seller, and at the end, you found or someone found you guys a brick shed in the middle of the desert with a table, a chair, and no toilet.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> that's that's an accurate. So, were you uh, the subject submarine.
1: of the Survivor show?
2: <laughs> that's, what, that's what I felt like, I, I th- that's weird because I, I set up my I, I went there in the night so it was pitch black and I had to set up my whole station wearing a head torch and then set up the generator also
0: <laughs> this whole time and they were filming you yeah, <laughs> yeah extreme yeah, like editing
2: you, you, are, you are the survivor it's like yeah I really have not been as isolated like that in anywhere like you know, even now with the circuit breaker or whatever, it's, not, it's nothing compared to that kind of isolation that I, had, that I had there for six days. So the only time that I would have people have interaction would be like once a day when they would come and deliver my food. They de- would de- de- deliver like two meals at a time. And like they would, they gave me a flask for hot water because it got quite cold at night. And apart from that, right? Noth- and they were like, yeah, just watch out for wolves. So just make sure the door is shut properly wolves. at night. Yeah, there were wolves in the area I was like okay point noted
1: I bet it there are hidden cameras so everywhere
2: I, I had to result in because you, you have no connectivity I didn't have, I didn't have a book I didn't have anything with me I just had my station so if I wasn't looking at the rushes of the show I just resulted to filming myself I just like started recording myself and I started talking to <laughs> the camera and saying like okay this is day one this is day two this is day three
0: do you still have these tapes? yeah I do have it somewhere
2: <laughs> It was it was such a weird it was such a weird experience, man. It it was, and then on the third day I had food poisoning, which was just the icing on the cake. Uh, really? I ate some lamb that was off, and then, uh, I had food poisoning and I had like really bad like diarrhea, and I didn't have any toilet. There wasn't toilet there, right? So I was just like, uh, it was not
0: a. Let's just say sign. right, if you actually died, right, and then it found footage. We found your your tapes, of you. Recording yourself Descending into insanity Right
1: And then Yeah man
0: It'll be the best Horror show on earth I swear Because it's actually real
2: <laughs> I was thinking about that I was like If I die right This is the last thing That they will see So I better come across Like <laughs> like properly You know, I better be Articulate in my ideas Right now And share I was just saying stuff like This, this would be amazing If we had More than one person here If I had to, if, if I could yeah, chill With someone yeah. here It would be nice that was what I was saying in the videos, I think. Because it was such a beautiful place. It was amazing scenery. And every like every other day there'll be a sandstorm. Then I had to like, lock myself in the shed. And then the whole like all I see was orange outside for like a few hours. And then after it would disappear and then it would be like a super nice clear sky. And it was yeah, it was some of the one of the how, best
1: How big was the shed. Scenery. Like one room. It was
2: yeah, it was probably the size of the, your room that you're in now. I mean it's like a tiny shed. Um it's there it was a there was a small table and chair at the front and like a wooden platform at the back. So you can sleep on the wooden platform. But uh that that was it. Like there wasn't anything else.
0: Fucking wolves. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it.
2: Yeah. So do you see any wolves? No. But we heard we heard them
1: howling. Some uh, Asian meat, Singapore. Did they give you meat. any
0: knives or any like gun defense?
1: <laughs> any form of defense? Uh, no,
2: nah, I had a I think I had a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> but I had a I had a radio and that was my only uh,
0: It takes seven minutes. Two. Okay. You have to fight a wolf for te- <laughs> yeah. seven minutes before they come.
2: <laughs> that was the Shit. Yeah man. That that was such a such an interesting experience. And of course coming out of it, right? I was so happy to be in the company of people, right? I was just like embracing everyone. I was like, guys, you, you you wouldn't understand, man. Like it was so weird. It was just I I just had no human interaction for six days. Do you try yeah. exploring the area outside the shed? I I, I I I every day I ventured out a bit further. Like <laughs> I would just like walk <laughs> slightly further, and because I I'm not supposed to be too far away from the the radio, the main radio, in case they come, in case they calms me. So I I have to. So, like, around 5-6pm, I would, like, venture out and then just try to look around a bit. Then i walk back. Uh, If not, I the only time I go out is to change the generator if I need to pee or whatever. Change the generator oil, like, top up my generator. When I was do- experiencing that, I was like, I never in my life thought that this is going to be what I was doing. I'm not... I wasn't actually filming anything. I was just wrangling footage for a shoot in the middle of nowhere. What?
1: Well, what do you mean by wrangling?
2: Ingesting the footage, uh, like, basically... Copying the footage from the memory cards onto the mem uh, the hard drives and then like watching the footage back, logging the footage, prepping the footage for the editors to edit. That so was when, my role at first.
1: So when you were doing that, did you like scared were you afraid of deleting stuff accidentally? <laughs> yeah. That that was the thing they were they were saying that
2: my job was the my my insurance coverage was the highest out of everyone because I had the rushes with me and the rushes means the whole show. The rushes equal the whole show. Mm. So, the drives were like $500 each but the drives with footage in it were easily like tens of thousands of dollars because that's all... That's where all the money is going into. The whole point of the whole show is in those drives, right? The like, Yeah. (sighs)
1: So,
2: so I didn't... I I thankfully survived the six episodes without losing any rushes because I it's just a very meticulous, meticulous job. So, I do think, like, if someone is starting editing, right, it's important to go through that process also because the process of mm-hmm. organizing your footage, right, as an editor is super important and I, and when the company that I worked at, the editors, the, the, the I looked up to, like, two senior editors and they were super good at organizing their stuff and, it's it's really important if you eventually want to go freelance one day because you will have to take charge of organizing your footage and backing up your stuff and things like that so there's all these other admin stuff like uh, you would say that comes with edit it's not just about editing it's also about how you prepare your footage and then how you back up your footage because all of that is equally as important because if if one thing goes wrong and you lose your stuff then you don't have a, you don't have an end product
0: speaking of that right have you yeah. made any like big fuck ups
2: Yes, but not to a point where it reached my boss. I think I think it was it was sorted out within a lower level because I didn't I didn't lose any footage. That was the most important thing. I think the worst thing you can do is lose something it lose footage. Mm. Because then that's losing money for the company already. So the process that we had and I really respect this process and I and I think that I can apply this process into any productions that I go to from now on because I feel that that's, a, that's quite an airtight process the way that they back up the footage in the company that I worked at it was very meticulous and they make sure that not only one person is doing it they have multiple people doing it at the same time so that it's spread out so the error the room for error is is just reduced drastically so I did have certain times where I accident, accidentally uh, deleted something but there were two backups all the time. So it just, it just involved taking more time to go and find the backup and pull the backup out.
0: You seem to have mainly worked on like comment, uh, documentaries and also reality TV shows. Are there any biggest misconceptions that audiences have of, of, of these kind of shows?
2: I think, you know, you watch reality TV shows, especially with reality TV shows, you have to understand that it's manufactured as with most things that are on TV it is manufactured right we are all in the the boredom killing business we are there to entertain people and that's what your goal is right is to be entertained now I have differing points of views here because I feel like yes TV shows are there to entertain but if you're passing off a TV show as factual then you do have personally I feel like you do have you need to have some sort of integrity and you know uh, respect your audience a bit and not blatantly lie to your audience and stuff like that. So,
0: Ooh, that's how loads. I would...
2: <laughs> that's how I like to work. I mean, I I, I like to be honest. Like, I, I, I don't think like... It depends on what kind of shows you're doing. If you're doing a drama or whatever, yeah, sure. If you're doing... If you're doing a reality show, I also think you can be a bit more tongue-in-cheek or whatever it is. You can... Because... It's a bit like wrestling. People know that it's an exaggeration also. Like, so if you watch like Keeping Up With The Kardashians and stuff like that, you know that it is obviously done to exaggerate uh, certain situations and make things more dramatic than it is. So if you look at Singapore Social and that kind of style of show, it's done to create drama. Even though there's no drama, right? It's You're trying to create some sort of drama by choosing... Again, with the editing, you choose the shots that you use... You 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 put certain words together or certain lines together that they didn't necessarily say in that way and then you cu- you form something that is a bit different. Mm. So, you know, you have all these techniques that you use to create or create what they call uh, conflict or they do, to create some sort of uh jeopardy. That's what that's the term that they use, you know, you need to have jeopardy just before a commercial break. Or you have to have mm. jeopardy here so that there's a cliffhanger so that people come back after the commercial break to watch. These things a part of the, I mean, it's something that I learned more when I was there, obviously, and I and I realized how manufactured a lot of the shows are. I I just think, people people should watch reality knowing that it is a, an exaggeration. so it's not really a rea- it's not really reality. It's an exaggerated reality.
0: Any plans to you know move on from documentaries from reality TV? You know any big movie plans?
2: I think when I was younger, when when I was in poly, I wanted to do, to do a movie, and I've always wanted to write a movie. And I was like writing movies, with, writing short films with my friends, but now I I don't think that I actually would want to make a movie. I'll be more, I might be more inclined to do to make a documentary. But that being said, that the amount of effort and time and sacrifice that you need to put into making a documentary, that chances are would <laughs> very Rarely be successful here. Also, it's not uh, it's not something that it's in in the in the immediate future for me. Like. I don't think it's in the plans for the immediate immediate future. And at the moment, like I'm I I'm trying to, as this segment is called, pay the bills, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. with with uh, with editing, editing is a good skill to definitely a good skill to have to pay the bills. It it's about finding the clients and finding the projects. Because now I'm a freelancer, yeah. So. Yeah, it's about it's it's just finding moving from from one project to the next project and seeing how that goes. If I have the time and the money, I would I would try to make a documentary. If if there's something that I feel passionate about enough to do, because at the moment I don't really have something like that yet.
0: Do you think the Singapore industry is not environmentally, uh, cohabitable for documentarians like you?
2: in order to get to the level where you want to make your own things and your own kind of content you need to be making enough money from your other from other means to have enough money have enough that, that disposable income where you don't have to see a return on the money and and you notice that you're you okay with losing that money if you just <laughs> put this amount of money into making a film because there's a high chance you're not going to get anything back from it but what you do get back from it is your own personal satisfaction and the passion that you have of making us st- of telling a story, I think that is like the hardest part of of this of of working in a, in the industry because all of us have our own like want to have our own expression, you know. But when when it comes down to it, you're always working for someone. You're working with someone. It's always a collaboration. It's always a team effort. It's never just what you want to do, and it's very rarely what you want to do. And it's, and the thing is, it's very rarely ever satisfying in terms of everyone ha- thinking that what you made was good there's always going to be room for improvement and it's just that you managed to hit a deadline and you have to work towards a deadline you can't satisfy everyone and there will always be creative differences mm. and that's just the nature of the industry and you have to be ready to 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 deal with that i guess mm. yeah.
1: how how have you navigated like creative differences between yourself and um someone else in the production process
2: I think I'm I'm also a bit stubborn when it comes to it. When I'm very sure of a certain way of doing something. Uh but then again I, need, I it also depends on who's the, who's the one telling me to about uh because I I've worked the best with um executive producers and producers who've previously have had editorial backgrounds. So they are, they, are, they come from a, they were editors before. And because they were editors before, they understood what worked in the edit, and they and they went out and shot stuff for the edit.
1: Mm.
2: So that's very important. And when they communicate to the editor, it comes across really clear. So they really have an I- good idea of what they want, even though it may not be the same style that I have in my mind. But they communicated it to me clearly, and they are way more experienced than I am. So I take it that I trust that this is the right way to go, and that was just solely because of their experience even though I may not think that that style might work or whatever it is, I, I need to understand that, that that they've been doing this for 20, 30 years and they they know what they're talking about.
1: You mentioned shooting for the edit. Like what does that entail? What, what does that mean?
2: So when you have a scene,
1: for example,
2: as an editor, you know, you kind of have an idea of what kind of shots you want to use. For this scene, and you try to find those shots in the in the rushes, right? Or you look and you look at the rushes, and you have these shots and these shots, and you okay, you have a wide, you have a close up, you have a mid shot, and then you you piece it together in your head first, and then after that you piece it together in the timeline. So as a as a producer who understands how the edit works, who who, who can play the scene out in his or her head, those mm-hmm. those producers are naturally the better ones because they will direct the camera people on shoot to get shots that work in the edit. They also don't waste time shooting stuff that never gets used in the edit because that's something that a lot of productions do is they overshoot. They just keep shooting, shooting, shooting and it's like, oh, you know, we have more stuff. The more stuff, the better. But the more stuff means the more hours spent through looking... The editors have to spend through looking through the stuff to find stuff versus if you're an experienced producer who knows what works in the edit, you go there and you shoot what works in the edit and then it saves time for the editors also because it's whatever is there is there and it's all shot with the intention to play out as a scene in the edit
0: any advice for aspiring editors i think
2: listen more and be patient with having your own creative input also that's something that i wish i did better also i feel like i i i need to listen to people more and listen to listen to people who have more experience and Understand what they are saying before dismissing, this be- before dismissing them. If you're not sure, just ask. And there's so many people in the industry now, and there's so many different styles of editing. So there's no right or wrong, and there's mm. so many different styles. So you you can't say that this style is better than that style. It depends on what you want to make. Especially for another thing, right? I think if you go and watch YouTube right now, and you see the content being made on YouTube. Like, for single, for, like, one-person content creators, like, Sneaky Sushi, right? you If you watch his content, his content is, like, really, really heavy on the editing. Mm. And it's very well edited to a point where, like, people think it's easy to do. Mm. So, because it's like, oh, yeah, YouTubers do it. So, it's simple. It, it seems simple. It seems, like, straightforward enough if, if, if this guy can do it. But his background is he wanted to be an editor. He he went to study film. So he knows... So it makes sense because then you see how well he edits his stuff and how yeah. much effort he puts into his edits. Yeah. And you go like, yeah, okay, that's that's why like... It it all is a lot of effort. It's a lot of hard work. And for if you want to be a new editor, just keep watching content. Keep, keep exposing yourself to different types of content. And then pay attention to like how things are edited. Pay attention to the music. Pay attention to sound effects. Pay attention to how fast the cuts are what kind of shots they're using, the choice of shots, right. these things, yeah.
1: Because just now you mentioned about being a freelancer, would you have any advice on um, people getting into, like editors getting into freelance work and how can they put their sales out there to be found or how do they like try and get clients or projects or work? If you have anything to, to say about that.
2: Yeah, I think I'm I'm quite new to this to being a freelancer So I'm not Fully Or maybe what you've tried What Okay what I've tried Was just talking Okay that's the most important thing Is to use your contacts right To use your friends mm. And Naturally if you study uh Media If if it's in uni or poly right Then you will have Contacts and people that are In the industry Also, so So It's about Putting yourself out there And just asking people If they have anything going on Catching up with them And then or and constantly being in touch with people, so they know that you are around, and jobs will come because hmm. if if someone is if a group of people are starting their own company, there's going to be times where they'll be overwhelmed and they will need more people to come in, to come on and help, need more people to edit or produce. So just keep your options open with your contacts, and after you finish a project with a person, don't try not to burn a bridge. Uh, just, you know, if, if, it's a, if it's good or bad, just keep in contact with the person and you never know if that person passes your name on to someone else, you know.
0: Mm. And that's the end of our interview with Vin for Skills Pay Bills. Tune in for more uh, interviews with other industry professionals. Remember that we are Puckish Podcast. That is P-U-C-K-I-S-H. And you can find us on Apple, um, Spotify, Instagram, and Stitcher. (laughs) Alright.
2: And YouTube. And YouTube. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Bye, guys.